Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg. And I'm Eve Yohalem. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider what are the materials of our lives? Who are the authors, the singers and songwriters, the actors and artists whose work resonates with each of us and makes us who we are? These are questions that are brilliantly and masterfully explored by arts critic Margot Jefferson in her new memoir, Constructing a Nervous System. Here's a snippet from the book's description. In Constructing a Nervous System, Jefferson shatters herself into pieces and recombines them into a new and vital apparatus on the page, dramatized here like never before. Bing Crosby and Ike Turner are among the author's alter egos. The muscles and movements of a ballerina are spliced with those of an Olympic runner, becoming a template for what a Black female body can be. I was intrigued on page one, and then I got to chapter two, where Margot starts talking about Ella Fitzgerald, and Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) I've loved Ella Fitzgerald my whole life. The very first research paper I ever wrote way back in 10th grade was about Ella Fitzgerald. I mean, Ella Fitzgerald is definitely part of my nervous system. And what Margot does with her is it's just breathtaking. There's a lengthy biography that delves into the horrors and deprivations of Ella's childhood, followed by an explication of the song A Tisket A Tasket. That's the song Ella wrote that became a number one hit record when she was 20 years old. You think the lyrics are just, you know, just a silly nursery rhyme, a tisket, a tasket, a green and yellow basket. I sent a letter to my love and on the way I dropped it. But in Margot's telling, that song becomes the story of Ella's childhood despair. She puts Ella's whole life story and her intense personal privacy and even her body into a cultural context. And then at the same time, as if that's not enough, Margot maps those elements onto her own story and the story of her family and her own feelings and beliefs about womanhood and beauty and black labor. I got to the end of the section and I literally, I had to put the book down. I was just astonished. And then I read the rest of the book in one sitting. I mean, a huge yes to all that you just said. Margot discusses books that I've read and reread in a way that got me thinking far more deeply about their influence on me over the course of my lifetime and got me rethinking my view of their content and the incredible way that she puts things. Just as one example, I took a picture of a page while I was reading and I sent it to myself in an email with the subject line, Margot's genius. That page, (laughs) I still have it. I reread it periodically. That page has this quote. Remember, memoir is your present negotiating with versions of your past for a future you're willing to show up in. Oh, I underlined the exact same passage. I mean, (laughs) of course you did, because it's genius. Yes, completely. The book is filled with insights like that, that make you sit up in wonder. But let me just say a little bit more about Margot before we jump into the interview. 
Margot Jefferson won a Pulitzer Prize for Criticism and previously served as books and arts critic for Newsweek and the New York Times. Constructing a Nervous System was long listed for the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Nonfiction. It's a best book of the year for The New Yorker and Publishers Weekly and a most anticipated book for The New York Times, Time, Los Angeles Times, Vulture, Observer, Vanity Fair, Bustle, BuzzFeed, and more. Margot's earlier memoir, Negroland, received the National Book Critics Circle Award for Autobiography. She's also the author of On Michael Jackson and is a professor of writing at Columbia University School of the Arts. We started by asking Margot about her creative process. Take a listen. Constructing a nervous system, it's part memoir, part cultural criticism. Its style is unconventional. The story is nonlinear. Your language is often poetic. Sometimes you address the reader, sometimes you address yourself. How did you come to this approach? Hmm, with difficulty. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, You know, first I really tried to think through and take notes on what I meant by um, bringing cultural criticism and memoir closer together? What was it that memoir had that I wanted in some way to um, infuse into criticism? And that had to do with a certain kind of um, autobiographical intimacy, directness, um, and a, a presumption that every piece of material, every anecdote, every confession, every character portrait is some kind of clue, uh, breadcrumb <laughs> trail to um, the self. I wanted those materials to matter as much as the usual materials of autobiography, your family, your mm-hmm. school, your social and psychological identities. So that was number one. And then I wanted to fully engage in the various selves, their moods, their personae, um, that mark a life, but that aren't always um, fully revealed in memoir. Mm -hmm. And to do that also, I had to violate um, typical chronology and instead go for chronology that was tied to um, an emotional or an intellectual experience. And I wanted the relationships I wanted to show, for example, um, intimate things about my relations with my father, but I still wanted to set that in motion by my father as a person in love with jazz and my mother as a person, you know, involved with style and obsessed with movies and and all of that. Mm -hmm. And of course, my sisters, you know, kind of my companion in all of this, they're all playing dual roles. You devoted almost a whole chapter to Willa Cather and her novel, The Song of the Lark. I just want to say as an aside, thank you. <laughs> I <laughs> love The Song of the Lark. I, I love a lot of Willa Cather. And I know, I know it's problematic, but no one else has ever seemed before you to share this love for the song of like, including Willa Cather, right? She has this no, she, that's right. She <laughs> felt that it was, you know, overblown, you know, in inappropriate form for her. Um, but we do love it. Yes. 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 So you open the chapter by quoting journalist Janet Malcolm, who said, 
every journalist who is not too stupid or full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. He's a kind of confidence man, preying on people's vanity, ignorance, or loneliness, gaining their trust and betraying them without remorse. You tweak this quote a bit and apply it to critics. Every critic who is not too stupid or full of herself to notice what is going on knows that what she does incites arrogance and hubris. She's a kind of omniscient narrator preying on readers' vanity, insecurity, and ambition, gaining their trust and betraying them without remorse. Can you explain that tweak of the quote for us? You know, as a critic, how do you betray your readers? You can, and that is extreme, but I thought, let's go for it. And some (laughs) of the people reading this chapter are going to love Cather, are going to feel betrayed, and some people reading it who feel, no, no, you need a full, a more full-throated denunciation are also going to feel betrayed. But I think it is easier than one believes, um, especially when you're a beat critic, to betray by virtue of... um, superficiality, a certain kind of arrogance, grudges and grievances that might be personal, but that can certainly be um, you know, aesthetic and cultural, that you indulge. You are creating and selling a persona. And sometimes, more than sometimes, you know, subtlety or reflection or changing your mind or admitting, I don't fully get this, it has to go by the wayside. Those things may have to be sacrificed to the PowerPoints of your, of, your, of your persona. And also you can just be by many reasonable standards. And sometimes you find this out later. You can be wrong and never actually need to admit that. And that can have real consequences. You know, I was especially aware of that in theater because so much money goes into these, you know, and they can be shut down. But book sales, too, you know, it can have real consequences. Okay, Song of the Lark. I'm going to kind of summarize what you say in the book about your approach to it. Correct me if I get it wrong. And then I'll ask a little bit about it. So you came to it as an adult in a spirit of literary feminism, and you loved it for many years, but you were also uneasy with it because of the way that Willa Cather fetishized whiteness, and because of what you describe as, quote, Cather's indifference, her dismissal of and disregard for any worthwhile role my people had played in the metamorphosis of American culture which was so much her subject, you know, in this book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you bring so much complexity to your exploration of Willa Cather as a woman and as an artist, and also to your consideration of her work and how it's part of the nervous system that you've constructed. I wonder if you could share just some of that complexity here for listeners, especially if they haven't read your book yet. Well, it is the story, essentially, based on a a pioneering American singer named Olive Fremstad, whom Cather met when she was a journalist. And it's a kind of, you know, um, Bildungsroman um, of a young girl living in the provinces in a working class Scandinavian family who discovers (laughs) her gift, her passion for music and in particular for 
singing. And you know, the rise through many trials and tribulations is from this little town, Moonstone, Colorado, to becoming a great Wagnerian soprano in the United States, abroad. She's wonderful, Cather is, about the internal and external processes by which one really makes oneself into an artist. Mm. I think you already identified some of my um, racial objections. I actually taught this book for some years at the New School with a very close white friend. And mm -hmm. we began to you know, talk about how we were not paying sufficient attention to, um, to this, let's call it, problem. Then I kept on teaching it by myself when I went to Columbia and reading more and more of Cather's criticism, which is where I realized that there was an ongoing, you know, not utterly major, but ongoing dismissal of. It ranged from benign dismissal to um, contempt, to deliberately kind of overlooking or kind of obliterating what one might call the Negro contribution, as we would have called it when she was writing the book, to this, this alive and ambitious and aspiring American culture. Um, Willa Cather writes wonderfully about white immigrants, communities, classes. There are moments in the book where she writes with some discernment about um, Mexican-Americans and about uh, indigenous, but it's, it's ancient indigenous culture. Right. But, um, right. you know, there's no room in her criticism or even in, in her other work for um, um, what, you, what Black Uplift used to call, you know, a Black contribution to the major culture. And it's mm -hmm. once you start reading, and I was approaching this chapter on Cather as a teacher. So you start reading the background, you know, you put together the life, the work, the criticism, as well as the fiction. It started to become um, excruciating, um, complicated, yes, but um, excruciating. And in many ways, it's not about race, but the invisible power, the invisibly visible power of, of race as European-derived culture, as Scandinavian Nordic beauty and purity. At one point in the book, you talk about Condoleezza Rice, and you say, one night I decided to rifle through an old file box of index cards filled with quotes I'd copied down years before. And there was one from Condoleezza Rice. No date, but clearly from the Bush Jr. presidency years, 2001 to 2009, when she was often asked to describe her close working bond with the commander in chief. The quote is, it's not my influence over him, I've recorded her saying, I'm internalizing his world. Stricken, I closed the file box. This cast an ominous light on my oft stated belief that there is strength to be gained from imagining what hasn't the will, skill, or wish to imagine you. I'm internalizing his world. I'm internalizing his world. How do we all fight against internalizing the world of those with power? Can you say a little bit about your struggle with doing that? Well, in a sense, it's very interesting to me that you asked this question following 
our talk right. about there's a about connection power. there because there's absolutely um, <laughs> a connection. You know, I'm working through. I'm I'm undoing the spells, if you will, of totally internalizing um, imaginatively, and that means, in this case, also historically, Cather's visions of of beauty, of art, of um, truly noble ambition, and I had. To, I mean, uh, my critical task was to undo that without pretending that I, for example, had come to hate the novel or that I no longer wanted to read Cather. Part of um, being able to detach from that obsession, that, that obsessional, culturally determined, seemingly natural um, internalization is not exaggerating your contempt, your withdrawal, Mm -hmm. your anger, your hatred. You go through it and then you map it out beside um, all the things that entranced you because those things are still in some way or another part of you and they will creep up again. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You could say, let us, let us, Move, let us do a leap from um, opera to rhythm and blues. You could say, I am doing the same thing with Ike Turner. But it is a question of acknowledging the, the lore, you know, the excitement, even the talent that he had. And at the same time, you know, moving into taking part in living inside the repulsion, the disdain, the contempt, the anger. Um, but also, you know, it's interesting that one didn't before, before feminism, before Black feminism, one wasn't thinking in those ways. Yes, we didn't, when I was a child, know how abusive he was being to Tina. But we knew about plenty of other men who were being abusive to other women. And it wasn't, we weren't framing. We weren't framing characters in that way. Maybe we should jump ahead to Ike Turner since he's come up. And because one of the many things we admire about your book is your honesty. And early on, you say, as I write this, I worry that I'm about to hurl raw intimacies at new uncommitted readers, (laughs) which was like such a brave thing to just put it out there. And you don't let that worry stop you from voicing the truth. So you note that since your teens, you've, quote, avidly, often secretly, collected black male performers as alter egos. And one of those alter egos is Ike Turner. Which some people might find surprising among many, among many. Among many. That's right. Let's, let's <laughs> not forget yes. Johnny Hartman. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Sweet but, but Marvin Gaye. Sweet uh, tormented Marvin Gaye. Yeah. 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 Totally. But those men are easier to talk about, right? Because oh, they, yes. there isn't the, the inherent conflict there. So no, that's um, right. Maybe could you share with us how and why Ike Turner is one of your alter egos? Well, okay. First of all, you know, why am I obsessed with with all of these men? It's their talent. It's Mm -hmm. their their power to project themselves into the culture, you know, the lurid racism notwithstanding. And it's the internal power to make yourself an artist and an entertainer and a kind of myth figure, which as a young woman, you know, I did not feel I had access to and which very few women Certainly very few Black women had, very few Black women had that kind of um, 
of power, um, whatever the men suffered. And I don't mean they didn't suffer. I'm thinking, of course, of race. But um, Ike Turner, all right. So um, I'm 12, I'm 13, I'm 11 if I'm listening to what radio shows and records my sister is playing. Um, you know, this thing we call rock and roll and R&B and soul music emerges. And yes, there are, not least Tina Turner, powerful women singers. Um, but, you know, the guys are still kind of ruling the roost in white and black music. So Denise and I were always, um, you know, singing or lip syncing uh, these songs because they're also ways we turn trying to turn ourselves into successful adolescent girls. Um, they're also ways to practice your dance, to practice your gestures, you know, to learn how to say hip things in a kind of cool voice. You know, Ike and Tina were so dynamic. They were more dynamic. They were more dangerous in a good way than Motown, you know, which was fun, but, um, and she was so gorgeous. But of course, yeah. my sister being three years older insisted, you know, as we went through the repertoire in the living room that she had to be Tina and I had to be Ike um, and maybe the Ikeettes. So, you know, at that point, I'm also kind of interested in acting. So I thought, all right, I'm gonna turn this to my advantage. You know, I'm really gonna study I'm going to study Ike when they're on TV. I'm going to listen to his line readings. I already knew, you know, that he was writing the songs and et cetera, et cetera. You know, so I'm going to make this count. Um, and somehow or another, it stayed with me. I never would have thought or acknowledged openly that I was attracted to him the way one I would have with Otis Redding. But he absolutely fascinated me. And again, it just stayed with me over the years. I kept, I reviewed. Um, Tina's memoir for the nation. And, you know, this was, ah, you know, we support our Tina, you know, she'd left him, she was breaking out, you know, this is the quintessential black feminist review. And God, what, you know, what a villain, what a dog. We all felt that, but he didn't leave this little corner of my imagination. Mm -hmm. And when I was thinking about because so much of this, this book is about the responses that you can't necessarily help, that you're not in control or charge of. Even if later, let's say, you come, you know, to understand them and to shape them, but initially you're not in control. I, the same thing happens with Gone with the Wind or with Harriet Beecher Stowe. So yeah, I thought, okay, you know, just do it. When he died, I seriously considered writing something about him that would try to approach these contradictions, shall we say, um, dualities, but I didn't have the guts. So I thought this time around, you'll find, you know, trust, you'll find a way, you'll find a way to do it. You've just given us also a perfect segue to the question that I wanted to ask, because we also wanted to talk about Gone with the Wind a little bit. <laughs> so. Yes, yes, yes. You include a fascinating discussion of many tensions raised by that cultural phenomenon. So to just choose one example, you write, in 1940, my mother and her friends had gone to their all-Black Southside neighborhood theater to see the notorious Gone with the Wind, despite the full-throated denunciations of the Negro press, not least their own Chicago Defender. As enlightened young Negro women, they surely knew better. 
As avid consumers of female glamour, they knew what they wanted. They wanted to study its tropes and lures, whatever the context, choose which ones to adapt and which to mock with confidence. Can you say a little more about the tension that can arise when a fundamentally racist and sexist culture also defines the arenas like glamour where we can find pleasure? Yes, which we are still seeing everywhere today. Yes. Yeah, you know, yeah. Part of it, I guess, I think you probably agree, is there is a very strong lure in many of us, many people, many young women, just to participate in the most powerful, if there's any glamour to them, rituals of the culture. Girls, and I think it's still true, are so raised programmed, tempted, even when, let's say, their parents are helping them fight against it, to adhere to, to embody, Uh, you know, because so much is, is physical, is gestural, is behavioral in terms of being exciting, not necessarily always decorously pleasing anymore, but exciting we must still be and alluring. It's like taking in bad air. It's like the water is poisoned. You can't help it. Um, I feel terribly lucky that feminism came along as I was graduating from college. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there had been these other movements before that helped. And I'm mentioning other movements because it's a question of what around you in the culture, what sources of rebellion, of opposition are powerful enough and developed enough and exciting enough to pull you in and to tempt you away <laughs> from all the corruption or to at least, you know, balance them out and give you a kind of critical consciousness. Um, I mean, I never stopped loving clothes, <laughs> but all these things prepped me, the anti-war movement, civil rights, civil rights moving into black power. And then came feminism and LGBTQ rights. So These are not just new political realms, they're new imaginative and psychological spaces. Um, So that, it seems to me, is is how you at least stay in conversation, which is not to say I think there was anything wrong with my mother and her friends going, but they were making a choice. And that's why I began by talking about the lure of popular culture, saying, you know, we want the power and the pleasure of being able to be, in a sense, shallow. (laughs) Yes, right? Absolutely, (laughs) yes. And being, in a certain way, the desired desired object and subject. And we're not scared. And we have as much a right, and we can do it as well. You know, they're all of that kind of um, defiance, competitive Mm -hmm. defiance is is operating. Right, and I guess... By mocking it, you, you say, you know, we get to decide what to accept and what to mock. And that's seizing a kind of power. And depending on what you're mocking and what you're accepting, it can be a significant power or it right. can just be a little intervention. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Helps you feel better. Right. Um, so you explored your childhood in Negro land and your psyche in this book, Constructing a Nervous System. Do you know yet where you want to go from here? (laughs) What you want to do next? Um, Well, a friend and I are talking about um, writing a book together, but with separate voices. We are both post-war generation. Um, 
we are um, different races. Um, there are class similarities and class variables. So we wanted without in any way writing, you know, one of these books that says how to have <laughs> right, right. friends across. We really wanted to get at the um, the difficulties and the, the, the performances involved in cross-racial friendships. I just love the complexity and contradiction that Margot brings into her work. Not only does it make her book rewarding to read, it makes her so much fun to talk to. I, I know how excited you were about the Willa Cather section of the book and the chance to talk to Margot about it. I think it's fair to say, correct me if I'm wrong, that Song of the Lark is part of your nervous system. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So I'm curious, did anything about your relationship with Willa Cather and Song of the Lark change or shift after talking to Margot? Oh my gosh. I have thought about this part of the conversation so much. First, just the instant, almost magical bond I feel with people when they love a book that I love. Because as Margot has helped me see, the book is part of both of our nervous systems, you know, sort of both of our fabrics. And so we really are united in that way, at least a little bit. And at the same time, since our conversation, I've been thinking a lot about how valuable it is to see the book through the different lenses that these compatriots bring to that book because of who they are and how their lenses can show me what I've missed about the book and the author. I have read a lot of Cather, and I confess with a lot of chagrin, you know, I never thought about her fetishization of whiteness before I read Margot's book. I think a lot about it now. I am not canceling Willa Cather, even you know, solely for myself. And I don't think Margot is advocating for that. What I think she's advocating for is a fuller reading, a more complicated reading. And I think everyone benefits from that. In my view, the whole world could benefit from seeking more complicated readings, more complicated conversations, you know, deeper understandings right now. A uh, huge, resounding yes, <laughs> yes, yes to uh, that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julian.